Welcome to the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a weekly public affairs broadcast produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Metis Nation, in partnership with the Centre for Research on Globalization. Our shows air on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States and are podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we present the conclusion of a two-part interview with journalist and documentary filmmaker Robbie Martin about his film series A Very Heavy Agenda and its depiction of the rise and influence of the neoconservatives in Washington, D.C. In part one, Martin described the inspiration behind making the film, the post-9-11 atmosphere in which the neocons flourished, and the neocons' role in fostering the new Cold War mentality in the Trump era. In part two, he recalls the largely forgotten anthrax attacks in the days immediately following 9-11, and addresses how at least one supposedly hard-hitting media outlet came to adopt and promote U.S. imperialist narratives. Later in the broadcast, we will re-air an interview recorded in December of 2017 with the founder of ConsortiumNews.com and legendary investigative reporter, the late Robert Perry, which focuses on how and why investigative journalism in the United States has become corrupted and co-opted to serve great power interests. But first, here is Global Research News Hour contributor Scott Price with part two of his interview with Robbie Martin on the Global Research News Hour in the summer. He aired a free to free block of programming over public airwaves in 2014 in Eastern Europe. Who does that? Who does that at the very beginning stages of like a new Cold War run-up? What Whoa. media company does that? And, you know, that sounds very similar to the way that the BBC and Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty operated is broadcasting content adversarial against Russia in Eastern Europe. Through the late 20th and early 21st century, the neoconservatives loomed large in American foreign policy. The war on terror the war in Iraq, the Bush administration. In 2018, it may seem that their power and influence has waned, but in fact, many of these neoconservatives still hold influence, and their legacy has had a much larger impact on politics and society. In this Global Research News Hour special, we talk with journalist, filmmaker, and musician Robbie Martin on his three-part documentary, A Very Heavy Agenda. This film series covers the rise and continued influence of the neoconservatives. In part two of this Global Research News Hour special, Robbie Martin talks about the anthrax attacks and how they were used to frame the war on terror, and how Vice became a conduit for U.S. foreign policy propaganda. The second thing I want to talk about is those anthrax attacks, and of course that's a whole can of worms also in and of itself and I, and I believe you have a whole documentary specifically on this correct i do yeah it's uh, much shorter it's um i made it before a very heavy agenda and it's it's about a 45 minute documentary right uh but uh the other thing too is when i was uh watching this how it was used in a way to justify kind of the war in iraq in a way because then that connects with WMDs, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know, so could, could you just? I mean, again, big can of worms here, but could you just kind of like, like explain this a little bit about about what what happened there with the 
with the sure. anth- anthrax attacks because also uh, i mean just as a comment i totally forgot about that completely and then when watching the documentary and then hear you talk about it like on your podcast and stuff all this stuff started flooding back and i was like oh right yeah that was a yeah. Hu- early on that was in that period that was a huge talking point and i, I was like how did i how did i forget it's just odd to me that i would have I told I somehow totally forgot about this, but anyways, just um, it just kind of explained that a little bit. Well, first, I just wanted to say I'm really happy to hear you say it all came flooding back for you because that was kind of one of my intentions. It wasn't even really an artistic choice. It was I I am a, a believer in the idea of like state dependent memory, um, and most of the time you hear that it has to do with drugs or psychedelics. But when it comes to traumatic incidents. I think it's also very important and key. So, and I went into this documentary after I made American Anthrax, when I made a very heavy agenda, I knew that most of the people don't even remember the anthrax attacks um, that that I just randomly encounter. So my goal was, if I put a chronological timeline of it and sort of re-immerse the viewer into this memory that, you know, they probably lived through and watched on TV but don't even remember it, then maybe those, some of those memories will come flooding back. Um, so I'm gl- really glad to hear that that, it, that had that kind of effect on you. Um, because I feel that that's something that if you just expose people to just video clips of the anthrax attacks and sort of show them how it was linked to Iraq and these things, then it'll be, it, it would really shock most people. And, but they would also not just be shocked, it would it, they would anchor them back to a different part of their life where they would remember and be like, oh, wow, now I remember I, you know, that trauma and sort of that fear, that heightened experience. Um, and, and, and you brought up Iraq. Uh, I, I'm a personal believer, and this is something that Glenn Greenwald and other journalists um, have also posited, that the idea that the Iraq war wouldn't have been possible um, to sell to the American public if it was not for the anthrax attacks. Um, I am a strong believer in that being the reality. I, I see anthrax, the anthrax attacks, as the knockout punch. 9-11 was an isolated incident. You know, I'm sorry, it, 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 it took place in two multiple cities, but it was mostly on the East Coast in a very small, you know, relative geographical area. Happened on a single day. Um, but it wasn't just the 9-11 attacks themselves and enabled the, the um, hysterical climate for the Iraq war. It was the idea that terrorism would keep happening, um, that terrorists would try to use biological weapons, you know, because al-Qaeda was so crazy, they said, that they're going to try to kill us, you know, using bioweapons or chemical weapons. Um, and the anthrax attack um, essentially provided that, provided that, you know, that narrative. Because if 9-11 just happened by itself and nothing else happened after that, um, the Bush administration and the rest of the Homeland Security Department and the media class wouldn't have been able to really sell us on the idea that terrorism was going to be a regularly occurring thing. Having the anthrax attacks happen, um, and I should mention also, it wasn't just a single anthrax letter that was sent in the mail. Uh, There were four letters that were found. There were five deceased. And there were also dozens infected, but that's that's that might might sound small, and it might sound like I'm exaggerating this idea that this is this much hysteria and fear over it. But if you actually read, um, 
there are some actual interesting stats in, um, and I can't remember the title of it, but it was an anthrax book that I just read, um, one of the last ones I managed to pick up a copy of, actually goes through, it does a statistical analysis of all the copycat anthrax letters that were sent through the country at the time. And there were something like thousands of cases of this happening. So what you had on top of the real letters was piggybacking of all these hoaxers and pranksters and people all across the country sending copycat letters too. So that the climate at the time was so amped up, so heightened, that it appeared that a, that a terrorist or a group of terrorists was sending hundreds of letters through the mail. And this is in a, maybe a three- or four-month period, starting in October. Um, it was discovered later that there were really only four letters found that actually contained anthrax, um, and they were sent to media and government figures. The two government figures that they were sent to, oddly, were two of the only people who were delaying the passage of the USA Patriot Act during the Bush administration, Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. Um, that's a very odd uh, two people to be selected for that attack, I think. And other people have speculated that perhaps this was actually the work of someone in the Bush administration who desperately wanted to pass the Patriot Act to strip us all of, 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 of you know, civil rights um, that you, it's even hard to quantify how much our civil rights are stripped with that Patriot Act. Um, so in, in terms of how it got us to the Iraq war, I should stress that if you look at every other Iraq WMD's hoax story, because all of them were either cooked up intelligence, doctored intelligence, or leaked, you know, lies of omission to the media about aluminum tubes, about Muhammad Atta's meeting with Iraqi officials in, you know, Iraq or Baghdad or Hamburg. I forgot where they said they met. Um, if you look at all the other connect, the, the other things that connect Iraq to Al Qaeda or this idea of WMDs, they had a nuclear program, you know, they had chemical weapons, they had sarin. None of these things actually turned out to be true. Um, and none of them actually had any effect over here. But one of the remaining uh, Iraq war WMD narratives that stuck uh, was that Iraq had a biological weapons program. They had anthrax stockpiles. That was something you heard the Bush administration say. Colin Powell even held up the vial at the U.N., um, and that was about two years after the anthrax attack, or less, maybe two and a half years after. But in between that period where Colin Powell held up the vial and the anthrax being sent to the mail, um, it, there was an ongoing anthrax attack happening in the country. So when you have the Bush administration all of a sudden going out saying, Saddam has WMDs, anthrax stockpiles, he doesn't have to spell it out 100% because this is how the Bush administration was so clever about it. They never directly blamed Saddam Hussein for the attacks. What they did was they continually put out propaganda about how Saddam has anthrax stockpiles during the attacks without actually telling the American public who was behind them. And actually Bush speculated that it was probably al-Qaeda. But it's very important because everyone really forgets, I think, how this three-way connection was created between Saddam Hussein, al-Qaeda, and 9-11. How did they manage to get that to sink in? It wasn't just because the Bush administration lied about the meetings and all that stuff. None of that stuff ended up having any real concrete proof. The only thing that really affected us here were the anthrax attacks. Psychologically speaking, without spelling it out, that's how the Bush administration got that idea to sink in. WMDs 
was a real thing. It wasn't just a talk of foreign policymakers. It was because it was being sent through the mail and killing us at the time. So, and then, of course, there were people leaking to media figures like Brian Ross on ABC that it had tr hallmarks of Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program. So you had that propaganda coming out, too. But, you see, the neocons and Bush were clever enough to not spell it out 100%. Um, and Bush had neocons like Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol and people who weren't in the administration kind of connecting the rest of the dots in the media, like Charles Krauthammer, other people, um, you know, alleging that this is probably the work of Saddam Hussein. In on to uh, sort of the rebranding of the neoconservative hawkish positions, uh, I think to me your political analysis on vice news is one of the sharpest and useful there is. I mean, there's a lot of people who've talked about vice uh, but I think you have uh, 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 you, you base it in like a, a, a political analysis, and basically how now Vice pretty much echoes U.S. foreign policy positions. If you look at Vice coverage of Ukraine, Venezuela, Russia, North Korea, they've all pretty much taken like full blown hawkish positions, but they hide it under layers of irony and feigning that they are non ideological. Just I think in the style that they that they produce these things. So could you talk about that shift with, with, with vice? I mean, I think there was always uh, uh, a reactionary political bent to it, but I mean, now it's just over the last several years, it's just full blown uh, hawkish position. So like, how does that happen? And like, why is vice the perfect vehicle for us foreign policy propaganda? Well, um, it's, it's all very valid questions, and I, I guess I'll just um, start with something that I don't know if I, I think it's revealed in part three of a very heavy agenda, um, but it's something that's been well known for a while, is that the founder of neoconservatism, Irving Kristol, Bill Kristol's father, um, was actually uh, the editor, co-editor for a magazine that was popular in Europe called Encounter that was made for liberal intellectuals. It wasn't a super popular magazine. It wasn't meant for people on the right side of the spectrum. Uh, it was meant for like artists and intellectuals and stuff like that in, in Europe. And it turned out that this magazine was being primarily funded by the CIA. And Irving Kristol said he didn't know it was being funded by the CIA, that he was annoyed when he found out. I don't believe any of that. I think that he was actually part of a, a, a part of working for the CIA. I think that was actually his job. Mm. Um, I didn't put that in my movie because that's more speculation on my part. But that being said, I think that this type of thing has been done by American foreign policy um, propagandists and, and information war types and intelligence agencies for a very long time. Um, this is a magazine that was uh, being printed and distributed in the 1960s. So you go all the way to now, something like Vice Magazine is almost kind of the perfect conduit to pass the threshold of the young, cynical, you know, mind and to get them basically to believe whatever they're telling them because it's, you know, Vice Magazine started as this edgy, sex-positive, drug-positive, um, you know, really edgy sort of culture magazine. And people fell in love with it. I mean, it became a big thing. Um, in the United States, I, I remember even in the early aughts, it was uh, very, very popular. 
It was also free, uh, freely distributed, which I'm still kind of confused about how they afforded to do that, just getting all the, enough advertising money to, to print it for free. Um, I think that needs to be closer examined. Um, but that, just that aside, um, they eventually started their own HBO show. And I think it was around... It was around when Obama got in office. Maybe it was around 2010, a little later. So Vice actually started their own TV show on HBO, and it started just as like Shane Smith himself, the owner of Vice, doing this sort of adrenaline junkie adventure tourism, going around all these places in the world that you know seemed really uh, dangerous. Um, and like I remember, the one I remember most is them going to Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and then him just talking about all the shit on the beach in Haiti. Um, and that was like a Vice News segment. And, you know, it was a very popular sort of edgy show at the time. Um, but what I didn't know about it is that it was being co-produced by, and one of their main consultant was Fareed Zakaria of the Council on Foreign Relations and also CNN uh, guys. You know, he's one of these neoliberal think tank quasi-journalists. And uh, and Bill Maher, um, you know, famous uh, politically incorrect comedian. He has real time with Bill Maher, um, and he actually produced it and and helped fund it. So he helped bring this Vice News show to HBO. Um, and Bill Maher has always always sort of been this guy who pretends to be some kind of libertarian, free speech, you know, really real liberal guy. Um, <clears throat> but he's quite a, quite the bigot. I mean, he's quite an Islamophobe. Um, He's, he seems to subscribe to a lot of terrible foreign policy platforms. Um, but what I noticed is, even just with already knowing that, that Bill Maher was involved in all that kind of stuff, um, the part that really started to bother me was seeing their dishonest coverage of the Sochi Olympics and the Ukraine, um, the Ukraine Civil War, essentially. Um, and... From there, I was kind of like, well, I'm just going to start looking at this more closely and really try to figure out what their narrative is. Like, what is the narrative they're putting out? Because as you said, they act like they're just, they don't have an editorial slant on this show. It's usually a younger reporter um, who's just going out, you know, kind of seemingly naively covering a story and just along for the ride. Um, A lot of it's like kind of fly on the wall. The reporters aren't asking very adversarial questions mostly just like a documentary kind of thing. Um, But I started noticing something uh, very specific very early on when I started looking at this, is that their foreign policy slant seemed to be almost identical to the Obama administration and the U.S. State Department's foreign policy slant. And once I started noticing that and how consistently true that was for Vice, I started noticing other strange things, such as the BBG, the Broadcasting Board of Governors is the U.S. state media arm, um, that we have all these branches all around the world putting out U.S. state-sponsored content, similar to RT, Russia. Um, I noticed that the BBG seemed like they were especially excited about Vice running a lot of their content in their reports and on their Vice news segments. And you can actually see this on the BBG's auditing reports from the years 2014 to around 2016, is they seem particularly proud of Vice and the, and the eagerness that Vice had to share their, um, their content. So that's not just Vice 
mirroring the content of this Obama State Department. It's Vice literally using stories and segments from literal U.S. state-funded State Department-produced media. And that State Department-produced you know, media arm posting on their own website, on their government website, about how excited they are about Vice for using all their content. Um, so that was something else I noticed, and I thought that's awfully strange that this supposedly edgy millennial news outlet that just had started their own show not too long ago is this eager to use all this U.S. state-funded media content. And that, similarly, that, that branch of the U.S. state you know, government was very excited about that relationship as well. So, you know, that was the second thing I noticed that was really strange. And then I just started noticing um, that Obama seemed to be giving all this exclusive access to Vice, which says something in and of itself. There's definitely ways you can perceive what kind of favoritism is given to certain media figures. I mean, just look at Trump, you know, only giving these long interviews to people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and no other people from, you know, no other household name media figures. Um, Obama was giving exclusive uh, access to Biden and different people from his cabinet to Shane Smith of Vice. Um, seemingly more than other, he was giving to other media networks. And, you know, you could look at this and say, oh, well, the Obama administration and their people are, you know, have traditionally always been good at tapping into this millennial hipster media circuit. I mean, look at Obama going on Mark Marin, Look at him going on Between Two Ferns. And, but what I saw with Vice was something much deeper than that, where it was the Obama administration not only giving them extremely good access, but also trying to put out narratives on Vice News. And this all sort of culminated with a strange um, final Vice News special with Obama, or actually it wasn't the final one, I think this is like the second to last one they did with him, where Obama was literally the host of the segment. And Obama takes Shane Smith to a prison, maximum security prison, to talk to prisoners about how deplorable prison life is. Um, and I don't know what to make of that other than it being a White House-sponsored Vice News segment. If you watch it, you can understand what I'm saying. But it's very surreal because what other media network, especially one marketed towards millennials, would get away with doing something like that? You know, ho have the President of the United States host a segment. I mean, it just looks bad. It looks funny. It smells funny. So the fact that they would do that so nakedly it really showed me that they actually don't care and then maybe even in some ways they're trying to rebrand this idea of a liberal government being linked arm in arm with an, you know, this hipster media outlet, and that's actually a good thing. That's cool. It's not something bad. Um, and then I guess I'll, the last thing I'll mention is that Alyssa Monster Monaco, um, one of the people who spent the most time with Obama in the White House, who was with him on Air Force One, taking his notes, constantly shadowing him, becomes the COO of Vice after she leaves her White House spot. Um, it's a very strange transition there. Um, so there's more I can go into. I mean, Rupert Murdoch owns something like 15% of Vice now. Disney owns a large chunk. Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot more strange stuff with it. I mean, uh, Simon Otsarovsky, the host of Russian Roulette, their series about Ukraine actually whitewashes the Azov Battalion's neo-Nazi ties uh, multiple times throughout the series, and we now know that how brutally and openly neo-Nazi they are. There's no hiding it anymore. So Vice was trying to hide that. 
And I've been and I've been accused of being paranoid and crazy for even pointing this out. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's interesting. Um, I've actually tried to talk to people who have left Vice about this, and they're kind of like, yeah, you know, you kind of can see what you're saying, but I didn't notice it while I was there, you know, and it's like, I just don't, I just don't see how they didn't notice it. I mean, to me, it was just so obvious from the very beginning um, that something smelled funny about their yeah. foreign policy coverage, but there were just other things they found during the making of my film, Scott, like that Shane Smith says on video that they aired a free to free block of programming over public airwaves in 2014 in Eastern Europe. Who does that? Whoa. <laughs> Who does that at the very beginning stages of like a new Cold War run-up? What Whoa. media company does that? And, you know, that sounds very similar to the way that the BBG and Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty operated is broadcasting content adversarial against Russia in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. That's what they already do. Yeah. So I found that very odd um, that he would admit to doing that and just act like and just say it in passing. You know, like that was one of their marketing strategies. And also they have branches in over 100 and something like 120 countries. I mean, they are embedded all over the world now. I mean, they mm-hmm. have so many stringers and freelancers. They're a giant operation. Yeah. Um, so if someone wanted to use them like an intelligence network even, um, or for surveillance or whatever, it wouldn't. I mean, it would, they seem like they're kind of. It's kind of a perfect setup, actually, in a way. Even just for, in terms of their reach and their amount of translators they have for intelligence. Yeah, and, and so and then kind of talking like the second part about Vice and, and sort of their position, like we were just talking about this access they get, and then the kind of lines that they 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 push through their through their uh, their media empire, basically what they have now. This is one thing I was thinking. Do you think there's a connection between the lack of an anti-war movement and news outlets like Vice who speak and do really well with younger audiences? Like, do you think like, like, like this is, I don't know, like, I don't know how intentional it is, but it seems like they're, it's really good in neutralizing like principled anti-war positions because of, you know, what, what kind of, what, what we were just sort of talking about. No, I think it's absolutely you just hit on something totally true that's, that's happening is there's all these, you know, people won't seek out, they believe that they have all these alternative voices, um, you know, in places like Vice or BuzzFeed or Daily Beast. Um, but in fact, if you look at all three of those outlets slant on U.S. foreign policy, um, it's virtually always the same. They're almost always towing U.S. foreign policy line, at least during the Obama administration. Things have changed since Trump got in office. That's a whole other can of worms. But, yeah, I think that you're, you, that's completely true to say is that the anti-war movement, at least in any mainstream sense, um, has been pretty much completely neutralized. And even like the sub-mainstream anti-war movement that you know, you used to hear about war, anti-war protests. I mean, I think the last one was uh, a large group of people um, protesting the White House when Obama threatened to bomb Syria because they had crossed the red line. Um, that was one of the lar- last major groundswell protests against, that the anti-war movement was really a part of um, that, like, I think kind of penetrated at least partly through the mainstream. Since then, though, I think that it has been largely neutralized 
Um, even the idea that we are perpetually bombing um, ISIS in Syria, um, even people on the anti-war left who are journalists and who do work in that area, um, they don't even really write about how that's you know an endless part of the endless war on terror. It's it's kind of like that's kind of just accepted that we just need to eradicate ISIS and just keep bombing Syria and Iraq over and over again until you know killing unknown scores of civilians. Um, so I think that unfortunately the anti-war movement has largely disappeared. Um, the drone you know the drone wars have increased under Trump. Um, more civilians are being killed, more bombs are being dropped under Trump than were under Obama. Uh, he's doing it at a higher rate. You don't really hear much outcry, really. Um, it just seems like mostly the consensus, even from the, you know, I don't want to say the left, but the liberal side of the spectrum um, is calling for more war um, and w how we should overthrow Assad, how Maybe we should, um, you know, put squeeze Putin more. Maybe we should sanction North Korea and starve North Koreans more. Um, that's sort of the rhetoric from the left right now. It's fortunately there's not. I mean, the, the anti-war stuff saying that we should keep our hands off of those countries and you know, and maybe not sanction Venezuela or talk about overthrowing them. I mean, there's very few vo voices out there saying that kind of stuff right now. I mean, even shows like Democracy Now in the United States have shifted more towards a regime change perspective in, in countries like Syria, mm -hmm. which is really, you know, shocking. Yeah. Um, but that's where we are now. My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is available for download from the site globalresearch.ca. We're listening to part two of an interview by Global Research NewsHour contributor Scott Price with journalist and filmmaker Robbie Martin. Here is more of that conversation. I, I guess one of the last, let's just what, kind of one of the last things, you know, about uh, a very heavy agenda, um, is is that uh, one of the major takeaways that I really got from the film and what I really appreciated is that you kind of show that there aren't really secret conspiracies and that many of these elites and these sorts of people are very open about what they want and what they want to do. And you show that through their own words and you kind of let these people sort of give you, give them, they, you know, you use the own rope that they have to kind of hang themselves with in a way. Uh, but yet people I think are still really attracted to the more cartoonish uh, kind of conspiracy theory kind of things. Um, and I think about that, and I also think about at the same time, we are really living in one of the most propagandized times, and it is becoming harder to really discern what is happening in the world. Uh, because, like, you know, these neocons, they don't actually, like, as you kind of establish in the film and what we've talked about, they don't really care about what the facts are. It's just whatever they can bend, whatever they can rewrite history into. And we just talked about like vice and, and how they portray things. So, I mean, I'm just wondering about someone who's, who's really kind of like yourself, who's tuned into this, like, how do you stay focused on what matters and how do you kind of keep sanity and, and sort of a, a sort of decent mental health? I mean, what, what are your kind of your thoughts about this? Because it seems we're, we're, we're getting, things are getting more surreal and even more propagandized uh, than I even thought, you know, in the lead up to the Iraq war. I think we're in a way worse stage now. 
Yeah, that's a really hard one. Um, I mean, gosh. I mean, I think just for myself, I I try to um, make the world smaller in terms of my what I focus on. Um, if I tried to look at everything at once that bothered me and tried to make sense of it and tried to address it and fight against it, I think I would, I would, there'd be no way to do it. I mean, I would just probably be a depressed mess all the time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, I'd be paralyzed by it. So I guess just from my own personal strategy is, and the work that I do is to narrow things down to where I think I can do the most damage, I guess, um, right, of right. fighting against it. Um, and for me, I've chosen some, you know, very specific areas. So I'll, I'll continue to do work and dig in the subject of the 2001 anthrax attacks. Um, but, you know, in terms of just charting what the neocons are doing and what their plans are, like you said, a lot of this stuff is being talked about out in the open. I mean, um, you know, even if, you know, it depended on what, you don't have to be a truther, uh, you, you know, to, to think it's um, a valuable information. But the fact that Project for the New American Century in the year 2000 talked about their eagerness for needing a new Pearl Harbor, perhaps, you know, tracking that back then might have prepared you better for the era to come in terms of, you know, what their propaganda was going to be like after 9-11 <laughs> and things like that and where it was going to go. Um, you know, because a lot of this stuff at least for me, it used to be plain catch-up. I would be looking at the documents that were written very, you know, a while ago, years ago, to try to understand the present. So for me, I try to read documents as they come out in the present to understand what's going to happen in the future and to try to at least, you know, get a better handle on what that might be so that when it happens, um, I can be better prepared to address it, I guess. And, I, you know, one of those ways that's shaping up now is this um, build-up to what seems like a Trump's administration beating the drums for war with Iran. Um, and that's something that, you know, I've been looking at very closely for the last couple of years. So um, it hasn't been a surprise to me, I guess is partly what I'm trying to say. Right. But right. I think for regular people out there, um, I don't blame people for wanting to unplug and not being able to follow what's going on, because I, I agree with you that it's one of the most challenging and intense propaganda eras in, in human history. Um, and so I don't want to leave people with a cynical you know, uh, note or, or suggestion on my part, but like, if, you're, if you want to do this kind of work and you want to pay attention to it, I would try to narrow it down um, to something, because otherwise it is going to drive you crazy. You have been listening to the Global Research News Hour special with journalist, filmmaker, and musician Robbie Martin on his documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda, that explores the rise and continued influence of the neoconservatives on U.S. foreign policy and society. You can buy or stream A Very Heavy Agenda at averyheavyagenda.com. Music for this special provided by Fluorescent Gray, a.k.a. Robbie Martin. For the Global Research News Hour, I'm Scott Price.
We just heard part two of an exclusive interview with Robbie Martin on the rise and influence of the neocons in Washington, D.C. For the remainder of the program, we will air an interview with legendary reporter Robert Perry, which first aired on December 7, 2017. This interview was conducted less than three weeks before a debilitating stroke to be followed a month later by his untimely death at the age of 68. Robert Perry is a longtime investigative journalist and the editor of ConsortiumNews.com, the first investigative news magazine based on the Internet. He was one of the reporters who helped expose the Iran-Contra scandal for the Associated Press in the mid-1980s. And in tribute to uh, his work over the years, he was honored with the Martha Gilhorn Prize for Journalism uh, recently. He has written a number of stories uh, critical of the mainstream media treatment of Russiagate, among other current stories crowding the airwaves and print media. He joins us now from his home uh, in Arlington, I believe. Yes, Arlington, Virginia, right? Thank you very much for joining us, Robert Perry. Thank you. So I'm wondering if if you could just comment on on some of the key failings uh, in journalistic practice that you've seen uh, as we get into modern times. Well, I, I arrived in Washington for the Associated Press in 1977, so it was, and I, I've been been working, I was working in a newspaper and for AP for a few years before that in uh, in New England. But the when I came, it was still, it was the, the, the national press uh, in, in Washington was still influenced by what had happened uh, in the 70s, particularly the Watergate scandal and the um, st- stories about Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, uh, so there was this a real skepticism um, that m- many mainstream journalists brought to what they were hearing from the U.S. government, and I and that was sort of a healthy thing. I mean, there are obviously cases where it went overboard, and uh, other times when there wasn't enough skepticism. But there was more of that mix back then. As we got through the 80s, the 1980s, the Reagan administration was very aggressive in trying to put this more independent press back in line. Um, they, they, they spent a lot of time and effort, uh, what they call perception management. And they realized that by, if they could control how the mainstream press was reporting stories, they, it would also help them control the American people who had gotten also a bit out of control in the 1970s and the late 60s. So there was that sort of reality that was beginning to emerge. And as we get into the 90s, there was, uh, there was a, veering away from any kind of serious journalism at all, mostly was focused on more personality issues, uh, Bill Clinton's sex life, and, and, and there, was, there was kind of a trivialization of, of the news. And then, of course, you get into the period of the 9-11 and the George W. Bush administration, where the press, mainstream press, simply failed to do its, uh, its due diligence in, in terms of uh, trying to check on what the claims were about the Iraq war, uh, there was a there was this more and more pressure to get in line, to be uh, be quote patriotic, as if as if that was sort of the role of journalists to to take the side of the U.S. government uh, and and not and not question the U.S. government too much, uh, and that's and we've now moved through a, this era where there is now this this attitude of that the press should should get on board and get rid of Donald Trump. Uh, I think the country was shocked in many cases that he won. I think maybe he was shocked that he won, um, and and there was almost an embarrassment. Almost there was a sense of humiliation about having this guy who uh, was considered somewhat of a low life 
by many and not very smart and uh, rather bigoted and and simple-minded, and that he had um, that he had risen to this pinnacle of American political power. Um, you know, one might say it says a lot about the dysfunction of the American political media system. But there was this attitude that we started seeing a year or so ago of of, of trying to reverse it uh, and looking for ways to for the press to sort of join what was known as the resistance. And so the press has, uh, the mainstream press anyway, has sort of jumped on board quite very both feet um, in this idea that they could use uh, the issue of Russia and its purported um, influence on Trump as some way to both negate the humiliation of having Trump win. We could blame it on some foreigners, the Russians, uh, and also maybe figure out a way to negate the election and and impeach him or throw him out somehow. There's that sort of lingering hope as well, I suppose. Mm. Um, but that, again, has taken the media in, in, a, in a direction beyond what I'd understood it to be, which was to give everyone a fair shake, uh, try to be as objective as possible, um, not be part of some agenda, but rather try to look at the facts and present them to the American people as fairly and as honestly as you can. Um, so there's now been this almost a break in how the, me- the media is functioning, where some of those old-fashioned principles have been jettisoned uh, in this desire to both uh, demonize Russia uh, into, as we enter a sort of a new Cold War, a very dangerous new Cold War, and also use that as a way to discredit and destroy Trump if possible. Today, it, it seems as if we have so many choices and and including the internet that there there seems to have been a a shrinking in in terms of the areas of allowable uh investigation or or news that you know as the the new york times masthead would say is is fit to print uh does that not seem a little bit uh, contradictory well i think you have different forces at play obviously you have economic forces which tended to uh, lead toward a greater consolidation of the news media as we knew it. Um, so you had, in in many cases, the number of family newspapers and um, various and somewhat alternative views, even if they weren't they weren't they, they weren't as as ideological, perhaps, but they were more idiosyncratic. You had you had different families running different papers, and some had different points of view. Um, that was pretty much wiped out as the corporatization of the press went forward. Uh, so, and you had, and, but you had, did have, on the other hand, you had some more, uh, in, uh, more first cable outlets uh, appearing, and then you also had the emergence of the internet. And and uh, and as I was sort of finding it harder and harder to operate within the confines of the mainstream press in the 90s, um, that's when the internet sort of was became uh, available to us. There was the ability of the of the American people and the world public to access more and more diverse opinion and now we're seeing a real pushback against that and i think one of the one of the darkest elements of this of the russia gate uh, brouhaha has been that a side of that has been to use that as an excuse to begin to silence the independence of the internet uh we've starting almost a year ago when uh there was a front page story in the in the washington post uh based on an anonymous group called Prop or Not. And this group decided that they were going to pick 200 Internet sites, 
including consortium news, which they would just deem Russian propaganda. And I guess the reason we fell into that was that we had been skeptical about a number of claims or narratives coming out of the State Department. And that, goes, that includes things like back in the, in the 2000s of the Iraq War. We were skeptical of that. But we were also skeptical of some of the, of the claims being made by Obama's State Department and how they were presenting the Syrian conflict, for instance, how they were presenting the Ukraine conflict. And what we were pushing for was a more thorough, objective, uh, multi-sided view of those conflicts, not the, not the Johnny OneNote approach that the, the State Department was trying to take. But because of that, we were lumped in these 200 sites that were deemed propaganda. Uh, the Washington Post runs this on the front page. The group is anonymous. They don't have to identify themselves as proper not group. And that, that was sort of a, a marker of, of where we were headed. And since then, there was more and more pressure on, on Google and Facebook to begin to uh, de-rank, as they would put it, or or isolate, marginalize uh, Internet sites, no matter how good they were, no matter how, how serious their journalism was, but if they were going in a different direction from what the New York Times was saying was true, or the Washington Post was saying was true, or groups like PolitiFact was saying was true, or mm-hmm. then there were some uh, Internet sites that were just establishment favored, like Bellingcat, which always seems to endorse whatever the establishment point of view is, those groups were considered uh, serious. They were put into something called the First Draft Coalition, and their job was to, as become, to decide what's true and what isn't true, or what is propaganda and what isn't. And if they give you a thumbs down, you get dropped from Google's search engine, basically. And it used to be that, like Consortium News on stories we covered, we would be at the top of some of these items because we got a lot of reads and maybe not as many as some of the big papers, but we got a lot. And so the, our, so our, the searches would find us. The, the idea of this new approach is to make sure that only the mainstream publications get seen. So if you go on, on in, for instance, today if you went on Ukraine News, you would see you know, the, uh, what – uh, the New York Times might have to say, or the Washington Post, or even the Daily Mail, or <laughs> different different publications. Some of which are rather, you know, sloppy in their journalism uh, themselves. But you will see fewer and fewer of these alternative voices. There's been a determination to try to silence that, to shut it down. In, in journalism, we used to pride ourselves in presenting both sides of the story. That was what I learned in journalism. You always want to present both sides of a story, maybe multiple sides of a story, because that way the American people are given the choices. They can decide if they want to agree with this or that. That's the idea of democracy. It's the idea of the Enlightenment. But now the, the, the major news organizations in the United States and these major technology companies have teamed up with a goal of preventing that. Mm-hmm. You're only supposed to hear what is approved for you to hear. You see, what you're getting is now a, 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 a less of a, of a menu of choices in terms of trying to understand the world. And, and that, that's what the Internet had promised us. And we, there was the hope we had. And increasingly now, in the past year, under, the, under this umbrella of Russiagate, we, have, we are seeing a reversal of that.
There was a bill signed by Obama before he left office that allocated some $160 million to fighting Russian propaganda in the U.S. media. And so, I mean, some of the, the measures you've already mentioned, I, I imagine that's part of this. Uh, are, are there other mechanisms that are, are being put in place that are, are continuing to restrict these, uh, the spectrum of debate and discussion? Well, sure. I mean, and, you know, there was this $160 million package to fight propaganda, and a lot of that is now going to NGOs, um, to various academics who are now writing papers, which have the predictable conclusion that all this is Russian propaganda. Any, anytime someone disagrees with the State Department, you're somehow a Russian propaganda agent. And so we're starting, we're starting to see more and more of these studies, which and then the New York Times and the Washington Post and others will then say there's a new study from some academic that no one's ever heard of, but who will, whose account will be treated very seriously. And so there's that. But before that, you had USAID, uh, which was funding uh, a number of these programs around the world, uh, journalism programs to sort of present, to sort of uh, support and to train and to, uh, and, to, and to equip people in these different countries to present stories that would be suitable to what the U.S. foreign policy interests were. That is, you would sort of have video cameras that would try to capture your opponents, uh, whether a staged event or a real event, but put them in the worst possible light, and then those things are distributed on YouTube and various other means, often calls into the New York Times, which, is, which are then treated very seriously because they're coming from these sort of approved sources of information. Uh, but again, it goes against this idea of, of getting a really diverse both sides of the story approach. We said, we've seen also the National Endowment for Democracy, which came into play in uh, 1983, which was one of uh, Reagan's uh, operations. And the goal was to start funding uh, not just these political activist groups around the world, uh, which would promote what the U.S. government wanted done in these countries, but you also had journalism groups being trained. And you had, you've, had, you've built this, there's been built up this infrastructure of funding and training, which is designed to uh, undercut the 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 sovereignty of, of of some of these governments now not to say all these governments are great a lot of them aren't but often the the substitutes that the united states sort of prescribes for these countries end up being as bad or a lot worse uh so it's but that has been the approach that's been taken uh and ultimately that does spill back into the united states because many of these ngos and other funded operations really operate out of washington they may they may have these satellite uh, activities, but they, they are here. And so they begin to influence how the major news organizations are going to see things because they're, they give press conferences, they put out papers, and so forth. So suddenly you're starting to see much of this propaganda then pervade the American press as well. Mm-hmm. The, um, so the, the, that's, that becomes the, the problem as, as we go forward. I wanted you to give give a chance, guess a, a little bit more insight into the uh, the exercise of what what you refer to as groupthink. I'm wondering if if you could think of any any examples, perhaps in more recent years, that really stand out for you as a a textbook example of how groupthink and, and journalists are uh, disciplined into maintaining their role as purveying the uh, the standard convenient uh, U.S. imperial line. <laughs> Well, the classic case, obviously, is the Iraq War, when um, any journalist, and, and I would include Consortium News at the time, 
uh, expressing skepticism about uh, about the, the WMD claims and the arguments for war, we were deemed Saddam apologists. That was sort of the smear that was thrown at us. Uh, we were doing our jobs, and but we were we were mocked and not patriotic. Um, so if you're in a mainstream news organization, you can't afford that. I when I worked for AP and uh, Newsweek and, and PBS back you know years ago. Um, it was still it was that way too. And if you were in the 1980s and and the Reagan people were trying to call you sort of a Moscow stooge or a, if we sort of come back to that, I guess. But if you were being called somehow unpatriotic for not supporting uh, or questioning the invasion of Grenada or something, you would you have you would have pretty much you have similar problems. But what's also happened is that since there are fewer and fewer well-paying jobs in journalism, that is. That uh, it's either it's kind of a winner-take-all situation. There there are some very high-paying jobs, and then there then pretty much there aren't very many middle-class jobs left because so many papers have shut down or consolidated, and so your so your 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 choices aren't very good if you're if you're trying to do real journalism that goes against the grain, you will be attacked, and you will be called names, and your editors will hear that. And they, and most editors are mostly conflict averse. They've got their own jobs to worry about. And what happened to Gary Webb? The tragedy of Gary Webb when he re- revived a story that I had been part of starting back in the 80s, the Contra drug story, and he revived it a decade later. And because the because our, that story had been been squashed by a combination of the Reagan administration, which didn't want that story to, to be accepted. And major news organizations back then, the New York Times, the Washington Post, for instance, that just didn't want to believe it, no matter how good the evidence was, that when Webb tried to revive it, he was then, uh, in terms of professionally, crushed. He was crushed not by the CIA as much as by the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, etc. And they ultimately drove him to suicide. They had lost his job and lost his life, and, and it became something. It's a, it's a horrible story, but it's one of... It shows how how groupthink functions, and it didn't even matter at some point that the CIA, the Inspector General of the CIA, came out and admitted that yes, the Contras were deeply involved in drug trafficking, and we knew it, and we covered up for it. Uh, that still didn't change the way the the big papers were were going to approach this because they were determined to protect their own their own turf. They 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 gotten it wrong. And they weren't going to admit otherwise. So we started seeing that kind of behavior. But we've seen it more recently, especially on things like uh, Syria, uh, where uh, the, uh, the mainstream press overwhelmingly took the side of the rebels, uh, even though many, many of the rebels were involved with al-Qaeda and then later the Islamic State. Uh, but, but still they were being portrayed as these nice guys against this evil government. So, and we, and always, we saw this in Ukraine, where um, it's all been presented as this one-sided story of Russia and Russian aggression, uh, when the whole issue, more interesting issue, really was how the how senior officials of the of the Obama administration, including Victoria Newell and the Assistant Secretary of State and the uh, U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt, how they essentially conspired to orchestrate a coup d'état. We even they even was the release of their phone call in which they discussed who they were going to put as new leaders, and they talked about how to glue this thing, how to midwife this thing. So it didn't even matter how much evidence you had. 
The New York Times ignored that evidence when they, they did a piece uh, a, year, a year or so afterwards saying there was no coup d'etat in Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. that somehow the president, uh, the elected president, Yanukovych, just sort of wandered away. But they, they treated, they, they ignored things like the phone call. They, they ignored the evidence of a coup to say there was no coup. So you started seeing this, this increasingly, I would say, just really very bad journalism but it shows, but it is journalism operating in a propagandistic frame. You, you've made a very solid case for the importance of supporting independent media like uh, Consortium News, uh, like this radio program. Uh, you've got a fundraiser happening right now, this month. So is there anything that you could say to listeners who, who would like to, uh, who are maybe thinking about whether or not they should be donating to, to, your, to your, uh, your site? Well, sure. I mean, I think the the hope for democracy, a meaningful democracy, uh, based on an informed electorate, an electorate that's respected, respected in the sense that they can hear different points of view and their brains won't explode. Uh, instead of being told, no, you have to hear one side of a story because otherwise you're just too fragile. Um, we, our approach has been to sort of to, to challenge that notion. And we've done it without advertising. Uh, I, I've, first of all, I think advertising on the Internet has never been a particularly great business model. But, but secondly, you obviously compromise as you, if, you, if you decide to go that way. Uh, it not, there's no perfect way to raise money, I suppose, or, or because you need money to, to function. But I think the best way is to rely on our readers, people who have a diverse set of interests, who I hope will respect what we do, even if they may not want to hear something we're telling them. But we're, we're telling them, we're giving them information that they, they really should need to know. But, but some people don't want to have their, their preconceptions challenged. I get that. But that's still the job of journalism, to give you information, whether you want it or don't want it. Uh, but it's, if it's important and you should know it, we try to, we try to provide it and give context and the rest of it. So we do rely on we do th- only three fundraisers a year because we don't like to bug our readers too much and obviously the most important one uh, is the is the end of year one because that's when people do most of their donating if they because it's the end of the tax year and so forth so so we're hoping to uh, people will go to consortiumnews.com and and if they if they think we deserve their support they'll give it robert perry it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much and good luck with your fundraiser okay thank you That was one of the last interviews ever conducted with the legendary investigative journalist and ConsortiumNews.com founder and editor, Robert Perry. It first aired December 7th of 2017. Before that, we heard part two of a two-part interview by Global Research NewsHour contributor Scott Price with journalist and documentary filmmaker Robbie Martin about the rise and influence of the neocons. Music for this episode was by Fluorescent Gray, a.k.a. Robbie Martin. The Global Research News Hour will be on hiatus for the rest of August. Repeat broadcasts will be available for download from the site, globalresearch.ca. New episodes will air in September. Thank you for joining us. My name is Michael Welch. <laughs>